I'm Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Glad you decided to listen in today. Hey, joining me on today's program is returning guest, Mr. Lawrence W. Reed. Uh, Larry is the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. He's a prolific author and commentator. And I'm going to talk with him about a little politics. I'm going to chat with him about his recent article, When Equality Becomes Evil. I think you're going to enjoy this rather provocative conversation that we had this past week. It is November, which means I have a special report for you. The report is titled, The Approaching Derivative Implosion, How Your Bank and Investments May Be Affected. If you'd like to get a copy of that report, as well as a copy of my revenue sourcing book, which was a bestseller when it was released, as well as a complimentary copy of my best-selling book, The Little Black Book on Social Security Maximization, all you need to do is go to the website, requestyourreport.com. The website, again, is requestyourreport.com. When you go to the site, you'll be asked where you would like all this information to be mailed, and we'll be very glad to send it to you without any cost or obligation. Again, the website, requestyourreport.com. Well, the big news recently was that the inflation rate dropped. Zero Hedge reported that, quote, the headline CPI, which is an acronym for the Consumer Price Index, which is the official measure of inflation, the headline CPA printed far cooler than expected at 7.7% year over year, down from 8.2% in September. So the big question is, does this mean that the Fed's interest rate increases are working to get inflation under control? Well, to fully answer this question, the first thing we have to do is address the fact that the official measure of inflation, the Consumer Price Index, is a heavily manipulated number. As the Consumer Price Index is calculated, there are certain adjustments made like weightings and hedonic adjustments and substitutions to make the reported inflation numbers seem more favorable. For example, healthcare is about 20% of the U.S. economy as measured by the gross domestic product of the United States, and it makes up about a 10% weighting in CPI. So without taking a lot of time in this segment to explain how the CPI is manipulated, suffice it to say that it's a favorable estimate of the inflation rate. Now, some of you may have been listening to the program a couple of weeks ago when my special guest was John Williams of shadowstats.com. Uh, Mr. Williams is a brilliant economist and he calculates the inflation rate using the methodology that the government used to use. If you go back to the 1970s, and you calculate the inflation rate using the methodology that was used at that time, according to Mr. Williams, you would find the current inflation rate would be about double the CPI. It would be at about 16%. Nevertheless, when you look at Mr. Williams' calculations, the inflation rate also declined in the most recent month. Which brings me back to my question. Does this mean that the Fed is finally getting inflation under control? Probably not, in my opinion. I have stated this many times previously here on the program. In order to get inflation under control, 
We need to have real positive interest rates. So what does that mean? Well, it simply means that interest rates need to be higher than the inflation rate to create an incentive to save rather than spend. Now, back in 1980, the Federal Reserve Chairman at the time, Paul Volcker, understood this, and he increased interest rates to nearly 20% to get inflation under control. So let's just be somewhat generous and round the inflation rate down to about 7.5%. Let's disregard the fact that that's a heavily manipulated number and just use 7.5% as the inflation rate. As I am recording this, the interest yield on a 10-year U.S. Treasury note is about 3.8%. So roughly speaking, if you buy a U.S. Treasury note for 10 years, you're losing about 4% in purchasing power every year. That is a real negative interest rate because the inflation rate is higher than the interest rate that one can earn by saving money. Now, while these interest rates are, in my view, not meaningfully impacting inflation, they are creating another problem. And it's not unusual for policies and policy responses to cause unintended consequences. These higher interest rates that we're now experiencing are already creating some potential problems. It's certainly not a newsflash to my listeners that the U.S. national debt continues to rise and is now in excess of $31 trillion. Fox Business reported this, I quote, the U.S. national debt keeps rising and to make matters worse, interest payments on the debt are rising at an even faster pace. Next week, the Treasury Department will release data from the final month of fiscal year 2022 including how much the government spent to service $31 trillion in national debt, the highest it has reached in U.S. history. According to Treasury data through August, and that counts all but the final month of fiscal year 2022, interest payments on the debt through the first 11 months of the year are now $471 billion. That's already a lot higher than the White House had projected for the year. They had projected $357 billion. Not surprisingly, that was a favorable projection. But they missed it at this point by already $114 billion with a month to, month to go. By the time the September data is entered in, you could see the cost to service the debt at $500 billion. Now, at that level of spending, at $500 billion a year to service the debt, you now have interest on the debt costs much larger than most of the discretionary budgets of most federal departments. And it rivals the amount of money Congress gives to the Department of Defense each year. So in short, this number is exploding in part because the Fed is increasing interest rates, and in part because we have massive operating deficits. Now, if you're not familiar with how government debt is, is, is labeled, there are treasury bills, notes, and bonds. 
a treasury bill is issued for a term of less than a year. Treasury notes are issued for terms of two, three, five, seven, and 10 years, and treasury bonds are issued for terms of 30 plus years. Now, when interest rates were low, many smart consumers that had mortgages said, you know what, I should go out and refinance my mortgage while interest rates are low. I should lock in a low interest rate for whatever period of time that I want to use, whatever period of time it's gonna take me to pay off this mortgage. So for example, you may have had a 30-year mortgage that you could have financed at 2.75% at one point. That would have made a lot of sense. However, that's not what the Washington politicians did. 50% of U.S. debt is financed with notes. Those are the two to 10 year timeframes. 15% of debt is financed through bills. Those are less than a year. And only 10% is locked in for 30 years or more. So the government failed to do what a lot of savvy homeowners with a mortgage did. Now, I realize that 50%, 15%, and 10% do not add up to 100%. The balance of government debt is government uh, debt that it owes itself. For example, Social Security has about $3 trillion of that debt. Now, here is the impact that rising interest rates have on government debt. At $31 trillion in debt, if interest rates go up one quarter of 1%, it's another $78 billion expense. If interest rates go up a half a percent, it's another $156 billion expense. And a 1% increase in interest rates increases the borrowing cost by $312 billion a year. We just discussed the fact that it costs $500 billion a year, roughly, to service debt. If interest rates were to go up another 2% from here, which would really just normalize interest rates, the cost to service government debt would exceed $1 trillion a year. That's simply mind-boggling when you think about it. So I believe for that reason and others that we will likely see the Fed ultimately pivot, and that's the new buzzword. What does that mean? The Fed will once again reverse course and begin to pursue easy money policies simply because it's the only chance to keep kicking this debt bucket down the road a little bit further. Now, when the Fed pivots, assuming they do, I believe that we will see a stagflationary environment emerge that will see higher consumer prices and lower financial asset prices. In my view, we have the perfect storm now brewing. We will have literally what I believe will be the worst of both worlds. Now, in the last segment of today's program, I'm going to share with you what a lot of the rest of the world is doing as well. A lot of the rest of the world agrees with this assessment. But as I approach the end of this segment, let me remind you that the November special report is titled, The Approaching Derivative Implosion, How Your Bank and Investments May Be Affected. I'd be glad to send you a free copy of that report, as well as two of my best-selling books, Visit the website, requestyourreport.com. Let me know where to mail that information, and I'll be glad to do so. Again, the website, requestyourreport.com.
Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Kubergen. Joining me again on today's program is returning guest, Lawrence W. Reed. Uh, Larry is the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Uh, he also served as president of that organization from 2008 to 2019. Uh, he was also the president of the Mackinac Center for Public Policy for 21 years. Uh, he taught economics full-time at Northwood University. Uh, he is a uh, inspiring guy, and I love to read his work. And uh, Larry, welcome back to the program. Pleasure to chat with you again. Hey, thank you, Dennis. I always uh, look forward to these opportunities. I appreciate it very much. Yeah, and I should mention also that uh, if you'd like to read Larry's work, uh, every uh, article that he publishes, all his writings, uh, you can find at his website, which is lawrencewreed.com. That's lawrencewreed.com, and I encourage you to do that. So, Larry, let's talk a little bit about an article that you recently published that uh, has a bit of a provocative title, uh, When Equality <laughs> Becomes Evil. Um, and uh, you mentioned uh, that in the very first paragraph of the article, and I have it in front of me, it said, memorize the following line, teach it to your children, shout it from the rooftops. It's one of the most important truths you'll ever learn or teach. Free people are not equal, and equal people are not free. That certainly seems to run against the grain of what we're hearing these days. Yeah, it sure does, uh, and that's unfortunate because a lot of people have sort of a fuzzy view of equality and, a, and an unqualified positive view of it. And now uh, there is one sense in which it is a positive good all the time, something to strive for, and that is equality before the law. Uh, we should all want the law to be blind to such things as our race or where we were born or any number of other uh, irrelevant factors. We want it to be applied fairly and equally to us all. But the kind of equality that I was referring to in this column is economic equality. And that is uh, to say equality in terms of what we earn in the marketplace or what we possess in a material way. And I'm basically arguing here that when people are free, they're not going to be equal economically. They're going to generate differences in incomes. They're going to generate differences over their lifetimes in what they materially possess. And that's mainly because each of us is a, a very unique being. We are all very different one to another. And nobody has identical talents uh, to anybody else. So... Larry, uh, when, when you look at the uh, some some of the political policies that are now being touted by uh, m many of the uh, politicians on the left, um, you know you hear things like uh, universal basic income. Um, you, you know, when when I look at those things and I read your articles, uh, you know, such concepts are really kind of destructive to the human spirit. Would you agree? Oh, I certainly do. And as a student of history, Dennis, I can tell you that I cannot think of a single exception. Uh, to this truism, and that is that when people begin to go down that path of expecting government to make them economically equal or to subsidize their behaviors or to uh, guarantee them a comfortable life without responsibility, the end result is always economic destruction, bankruptcy, and the loss of individual freedom. It, it happens over and over and over again. And Larry, I recall from uh, a conversation we had a few years ago, and I'm sure it's going to be uh, perhaps a, a, a new story for many listeners, 
you mentioned that, you know, as we're approaching Thanksgiving here, that the, the pilgrims initially were a socialistic society, and they kind of gave up on that whole notion. <laughs> yeah, they sure did. And uh, this was largely because of the agreement that the pilgrims had with the investors back in England. Uh, those investors, well-intentioned though they may have been, uh, they felt that, hey, if we're going to bankroll this venture into the new world, we want to make sure it has every chance to succeed. So let's have a provision in here that once the pilgrims get to the new world, uh, they have to put what they produce into a common storehouse and have it distributed amongst them equally so everybody gets the same. Well, the, uh, the problem with that, as Governor Bradford of uh, the Plymouth Colony later wrote, was that it uh, incentivized laziness and it disincentivized things like investment and risk-taking, entrepreneurship and private property. And so for the first couple of years, the pilgrims did practice that. Uh, but then Governor Bradford records in his diary that more and more people said, well, why should I work if I get the same as the guy who, d who does? So I'll just sit on my fanny, find something else to do, enjoy my life, and collect uh, whatever the, the colony chooses to give me, uh, which is going to be the same as everybody else gets, regardless of their work effort. Well, uh, that led to starvation. And then Governor Bradford decided we're going to you know, irrespective of what the investors suggested we do, we're getting rid of that. And so he said one day, and he wrote this in his diary, that we're going to have property held privately now. So it's yours. You grow on it what you want. You sell it for whatever you can get. But in any event, the reward for how you steward your property is going to depend upon uh, just how well you do at it, not just the fact that you're, you're breathing. Well, if you're just joining us, I'm chatting today with uh, Larry Reed. Uh, you can learn more about or read all his work, I should say, at lawrencewreed.com. Uh, and, and, and Larry, uh, I want to get back to your article, but, you know, as you were talking, it occurred to me that we really have a couple of different uh, philosophies being, uh, be, being promoted, if you will. One, uh, you know, the World Economic Forum, they were in the news again this past week, and you know, you can go to their website and see that they're they're pushing for a, a big reset. They're pushing for no private property ownership by 2030. Uh, I think they want us to eat bugs. And then on the other side of the coin, we have uh, those those of us that uh, are, are libertarian in nature that, that just want to uh, be able to live our lives and uh, and and do what we want to do as long as we uh, don't hurt others and and we're respectful. And and there's these two these these two big philosophies that seem to be colliding. One, do you agree with that assessment? And then two, how do you see it playing out? Yeah, I think this is uh, one very useful way to see the world, that there's a sizable chunk of people who uh, want uh, to free the individual from responsibility, want to guarantee him an existence, want to give him stuff irrespective of his uh, productivity or, or uh, entrepreneurship. And then there's the other group that says, leave people alone, let them do their thing, and uh, you will incentivize the kinds of things that, that feed and clothe and house all of us. Um, it seems to me that when you take a look at history, as well as economics, uh, the verdict on which of those two paths uh, works better is pretty pronounced. I mean, uh, in America in the 19th century, there were several dozen efforts to have a kind of communal society 
Brook Farm in Massachusetts, New Harmony in Indiana, you know, where they said, well, let's just have everybody put everything in a common storehouse and we'll divvy it up equally. And not a one of them lasted more than five years. Most of them went belly up in one, two, or three years. And that's because of human nature. People want to be rewarded for the risks they take. They, they want the opportunity to create and, and to uh, build enterprises. And uh, the, the moment you start just sending them checks, regardless of what they do, then they become lazy and expect more. And then politicians will start buying votes with other people's money. And before long, you've got national bankruptcy or local bankruptcy, whichever it may be. And there, uh, with that situation, then uh, you can flush your freedoms down the toilet, too. Well, Larry, going back to the article that you wrote, and I would encourage the listeners to go to lawrencewreed.com and check out the article. It is titled, When Equality Becomes Evil. And uh, I thought it was interesting that uh, going back to you know, human nature, in your article, you point out that in Cuba, North Korea, other you know, unfree societies, that you still see this disparity in, uh, in, in economic uh, lifestyles. Uh, can, can you comment? Yeah, uh, this is one of the uh, paradoxes or hypocrisies, you might say, of places like Cuba, North Korea, communist and socialist countries that love to denounce uh, free countries or capitalist ones as being places of great inequality. And yet, uh, we're the countries, the free ones, the capitalist ones, that have a broad middle class, that have upward mobility, that have opportunities for the poor to become wealthy. Uh, but in those countries like Cuba, North Korea, you've got uh, the very wealthy at the top. They're the ones with the political connections. And then you've got everybody else who lives uh, in quiet desperation and poverty. So you don't do away with inequality by giving speeches about it or in putting the state in charge of everybody's life. All you do is make sure that the politicians and their friends have a lot more than anybody else. And uh, Larry, as we're approaching the end of this segment, uh, how, how do you see these two philosophies playing out? I mean, I, I don't think I've ever seen a, a, a time that there's such political and ideological divisiveness. Uh, do, do you see uh, freedom winning out here, or, or uh, what, what's your take? Well, I have to be an optimist, uh, Dennis. It's part of my nature, I think. And, of course, nobody knows the future, so what would be the point of being down on it uh, before it even happens? <laughs> so I kind of hope and uh, expect that at some point, don't know when, people will relearn this lesson as they've had to so many times. doesn't mean that we won't have some tough times to go through in the meanwhile. But ultimately, people are going to come back and say, you know, we've tried this equality stuff economically by putting the state in charge of our lives uh, so many times. It never works. Let's get over that and enjoy the fact that people are different. And when you leave them free, they are amazingly productive. Well, I'm chatting today with Larry Reed. Larry is the president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Uh, you can learn more about his work and read all his writings at lawrencewreed.com. I'd encourage you to check that out, that out as well. I'll continue my conversation with Mr. Larry Reed when RLA Radio returns. Stay with us. Hi, 
I'm Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to RLA Radio. I'm chatting today with Mr. Larry Reed. Larry is the president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Uh, he is the former president of the Mackinac Center for Public Policy, uh, former uh, economics professor at Northwood University, and uh, a prolific writer and commentator. You can check out his work at lawrencewreed.com. And uh, Larry, just to kind of jump in, uh, we've, we've been talking about your article, When uh, Equality Becomes Evil, uh, and you quote uh, Austrian economist uh, Hayek, and you said that, uh, he said there's a difference, all the difference in the world between treating people equally and attempting to make them equal. And that's a pretty profound statement. Um, what do you see as far as uh, public policy now and U.S. Uh, domestic policy now that we uh, are through the midterms almost, although I guess there's still some undecided races, unbelievably, at this point. Uh, do, do you see things changing a lot here in the next uh, couple of years? I don't think you'll see any big changes, uh, Dennis. I mean, you'll see some investigations into matters that were covered up uh, in the previous Congress by the, by the party who controlled it then, that will be uh, uh, new and perhaps very revelatory. But in terms of major policy changes, uh, it doesn't seem as though the president is interested in making any changes, uh, but he'll be stymied uh, many times now by the House. Um, so things may not even get to the Senate uh, in many cases because they won't get through the House first. So I don't think there'll be uh, big changes. The presidential election of 2024, for all intents and purposes, has uh, almost uh, already begun. So next year will be a highly politicized year, and the next one even more so. And that's when politicians tend to sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, not get much done. They just run around uh, talking and promising and attacking and so forth, and uh, nothing gets done, which might be good, actually. Gridlock can be good if it's actually <laughs> the, the activists out of our pockets and out of our lives. So, Larry, uh, I want to talk about the elephant in the room, if we could. Uh, you mentioned before we started recording that you just returned from Brazil. Uh, huge protest there regarding the election. I think uh, uh, the high court in Germany just said that we need to redo these elections. You've got the uh, elections here in Maricopa County. Kerry uh, Lake is not conceding. There just seems to be a whole lot of uh, confusion, uh, alleged fraud, a lot going on around elections all around the world. And, you know, when I was growing up, we had paper ballots and we knew who won the same night. Uh, yeah. What's your take on all this? Well, I'm a bit old fashioned, uh, Dennis, in a sense that I want to bring back the old days of paper ballots, same day voting uh, on Election Day, maybe uh, absentee balloting with uh, uh, legitimate reasons, uh, maybe a couple of days early voting for those who can't make it uh, on Election Day. But uh, and certainly I don't like these I, uh, this idea that some states now have of ballot harvesting um, and uh, mail in ballots. Uh, and, you know, some people would say, well, wait a minute, voting is so important, we should make it easier and easier for people to do it. But the problem is, the easier you make it to vote, the more uh, you make it easy to cheat. Uh, and also, you, you cheapen the whole business of voting. I mean, there have been tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, probably millions over the years of Americans who have given their lives for things like uh, the right to the secret ballot and to 
decide who serves in our government. Uh, if you can't get out the vote or provide a legitimate excuse to get an absentee ballot, then I think you're shirking your responsibility as a citizen in a, in a free republic. And we cannot survive this endless process of never knowing so many, the outcome of so many of these races and having them challenged over and over again. But that's the direction we're going if we just keep making it a, a piece of cake for anybody to vote. Someday, um, if we keep going in that direction, we might get to where, and some people have advocated this, where you vote by phone. Uh, and, of course, we won't even know who it is who's pushing the buttons, but there are people who are trying to uh, incorporate a vote-by-phone system where you just call in and uh, you, know, you don't even have to get out of your recliner uh, to, um, to do it. And I just think that cheapens a very important and essential right of a free people. Larry, it seems to me, and I, I just like your take on this, that, that around the world that uh, a lot of these uh, a lot of things going on. We mentioned the World Economic Forum in the last segment. There's just a lot of things happening. This seems to be maybe waking people up. People that up to this point have been apathetic that are now saying, wait a minute, this, this just doesn't seem right. Is, is it just me or is there a, a grassroots you know, groundswell of people saying, you know what, we, we need to fix this? Oh, I see that, uh, Dennis. And I actually thought we'd see a lot more of it in uh, the election here recently uh, than we actually ended up seeing. Uh, there's an awful lot of uh, uh, people out there who just sort of given up, too, and I hate to see that because uh, if good people give up, then it simply is a blank, gives a blank check to bad people to, uh, to hold sway. So I, I think there are more and more people waking up and coming around to the idea that, for instance, government spending isn't uh, our salvation, that our debt is massive and way too big and ought to be reduced, and that government should quit printing money, causing price inflation. There are more people who understand that today than, than 20 years ago, but we still have a lot of work to do. You know, uh, Larry, back, back to your article, uh, When Equality Becomes Evil, uh, you, you, you made a really interesting point in the article that um, those obsessed with income, with, with economic equality, divide society between villains and victims. And there seems to be this political strategy or tactic to divide the country. And it seems to be working. Um, again, do you, do you see any of this uh, maybe shifting a little bit more to the way you and I might like to see things uh, go? And, and how do you see this play out? Well, I'm certainly working 24 seven to move things in our direction. Uh, sometimes I think we're up against uh, uh, what's often being taught uh, to young people in the public schools, uh, which is not friendly to freedom and free markets all too many times. Um, but, yeah, you, you see this all the time. People uh, seem to think that everybody's uh, one or the other, either a villain or a victim, and they're constantly angry. They're constantly demanding that something be done uh, to those who are more successful than they are. But you cannot drag down other people who simply are more successful uh, and thereby pull yourself up. You just end up dragging all of society down. And um, uh, I, I, that's, that's been repeated historically over and over again. You know, I'd like your take, too, on, um, on, on Fed policy. The Fed has been uh, increasing interest rates in an attempt to get uh, inflation under control. 
Um, it was amazing to me that the report came out and this uh, heavily manipulated consumer price index came in at 8% year over year. And uh, there were those taking victory laps. Um, I, I happen to think that the Fed probably is going to have to, to pivot. Um, I think that, uh, ironically, maybe Fed policy is uh, leading people. To, I think Americans took on $351 billion in new debt in the third quarter, which tells you how they're dealing with inflation. Mm-hmm. Could, could it be this, 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 this strange irony that maybe it's this Fed policy that, in my view, has, has caused some of these issues that will ultimately be uh, the catalyst that maybe wakes people up? Well, I certainly hope uh, uh, they prove to be that. And I, I do believe that the Fed is responsible uh, primarily for the price inflation that we're suffering from now. I remember two years ago, people like me, a lot of economists were, were uh, screaming from the root, rooftops that the Fed was stepping on the gas too much. It was printing money at double-digit rates, and we warned that this would eventually lead to higher interest rates, to higher price inflation, and then some kind of corrective recession or even depression. So uh, people have short memories. They they look to the Fed today uh, to provide answers, but if they just think back to a few months or a couple of years ago, they'll find that the Fed was creating the problem in the first place. I thought it was interesting to one analyst, and I don't recall who, I wish I could give credit in this interview, but said... uh, Bernanke's recent award was like giving a fireman an award for putting out a fire that uh, he started himself. And I thought yeah. that was a pretty, pretty fitting analogy. Um, in the time we have left here, Larry, I'd love for you to talk about the Foundation for Economic Education. I love your work and uh, would love to get those listeners who are uh, of that mind uh, to learn a little bit about the organization and support the organization. Okay. Thank you, Dennis. Well, the organization is known as the Foundation for Economic Education, F-E-E, or FEE. Its website is fee.org. And even though I'm retired to the emeritus role now, I'm still very active as a writer and speaker. And our purpose is to educate and inspire young people of high school and college age uh, in ideas of private property, free enterprise, entrepreneurship, the rule of law, and most critically, personal character. Uh, I happen to believe, as uh, we all do at FEE, that if we don't get that right, personal character, not not much else is going to matter, that no society has ever lost its character and kept its liberties or its prosperity. And so uh, a, a key ingredient, indispensable ingredient, in making our society free and prosperous in the future is going to be to fix the character problems that we see Uh, all around us, unfortunately. Well, my guest today has been Mr. Larry Reed. You can uh, read his work at lawrencewreed.com. Larry, always a pleasure to catch up with you. Appreciate you being so generous with your time. I know you're a busy guy, and uh, happy Thanksgiving to you and your family. Hey, same to you, Dennis. Really appreciate it. We'll return after these words. I'm Dennis Tuberg, and you are listening to Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. 
Thanks again to my special guest, Mr. Larry Reed, for joining us on today's program. If you've not yet requested a copy of my November special report titled The Approaching Derivative Implosion, How Your Bank and Investments May Be Affected, I'd like to invite you to do so by visiting the website requestyourreport.com. When you visit the website, you'll be asked to give us an address. And when you do, we will mail you the report as well as a copy of the Revenue Sourcing Book and a copy of the Little Black Book on Social Security Maximization. So if you're planning for retirement, If you aspire to a comfortable, stress-free retirement, the resources that we will send you, uh, I believe, will be very helpful. Now, in the first segment of today's program, I talked about the fact that it was my belief that inflation will not be controlled long-term. I believe the Fed will have no choice but to go back to easy money policies and create more currency. And in this segment, I want to dig into that to a little greater degree. Doug Casey, who authors the publication International Man, commented on this very topic this past week. He said this, quote, the nature of the United States has been transformed. Americans have come to see the government as a cornucopia that can kiss everything and make it better, especially since the recent bailouts. Remember that the prime directive of any entity, whether it's an amoeba, an individual, a corporation, or a government, is to survive. The present government can't survive without supporting more than half the population, which has become parasites. But the government itself is the biggest parasite of all. Can parasites live on each other forever? No. To use an overly fashionable word, it's unsustainable. Where will the U.S. government get the money it needs to survive? It can no longer even remotely survive on its tax receipts. It's rolling over debt now at much higher interest rates, which in and of itself is difficult. And I talked about this in the first segment of today's program. With a national debt exceeding $31 trillion, every quarter point increase in interest rates increases the cost of servicing the debt by $78 billion annually. I pointed out in the first segment that it was highly likely that the cost to service the debt this fiscal year, and there's uh, just a month left in the fiscal year, would exceed $500 billion. So a 2% increase in interest rates from here would get debt servicing costs to more than a trillion dollars a year. That is a big, big number. And much of the rest of the world is paying attention to this, and they are dumping U.S. Treasuries. As of the end of September, according to Zero Hedge, both Japan and China sold $118 billion of Treasury notes and bonds in September. So China and Japan together in one month sold $118 billion of treasury notes and bonds. That was the largest combined monthly dump on record. Now, the Financial Times commented on this saying, quote, in recent months, liquidity in the treasury market has deteriorated further. This recent development is more concerning as it seems as if market functioning has become a bigger source of risk rather than just reflecting the uncertain fundamental environment. Let me translate that for you. 
There are no buyers. There are not enough buyers for U.S. government debt. The dollar is quickly losing purchasing power, and the rest of the world is starting to move in a big way away from the U.S. dollar. Now, the Financial Times continued, quote, for most analysts, the liquidity problems in the Treasury market are not just about rapidly changing prices. They're also a reflection of a dearth of buyers or an inability or unwillingness of the buyers in the market to mop up all the supply. Again, there are simply not enough buyers. I wrote about this in my weekly newsletter, Portfolio Watch, this past week. And if you're not a subscriber, you can go to retirementlifestyleadvocates.com and check it out and also subscribe so you get it in your inbox every week. I noted this. There's an old axiom that says you can learn more about observing actions than you do by listening to words. And the BRICS countries are working to develop an alternative currency to the U.S. dollar. The Economic Times reported this. The BRICS countries are exploring establishing a new reserve currency to better serve their economic interests, according to senior Russian diplomat and BRICS point person Pavel Nizab. It will be based on a basket of currencies of the five-nation bloc, the Economic Times learned. Nayev said this, the possibility and prospects of setting up a common single currency based on a basket of currencies in the BRICS countries is being discussed. So not only are the BRICS countries openly discussing an alternative the US to the U.S. dollar, they are rapidly moving that way. And China and Japan just dumped more U.S. Treasury holdings in one month than they ever have at any time in history. Now, Casey comments on this, stating that this whole day idea of currency creation always leads to a bad ending when you study history. I talked about that with Larry Reed on today's program. Casey said this, money printing makes you think that you're getting something for nothing. It's dishonest, criminal activity, and it leads to a moral collapse. It causes a war of all against all, and everyone in the country tries to get his share of government money, which is to say stolen money before the next guy. It's hard to see how you break the cycle short of defaulting on the national debt, cutting government spending very radically, disengaging from foreign wars, eliminating regulations wholesale, and replacing paper with gold as the national currency, among other things. If those things happened, Casey points out, the economy would boom after a short, albeit extremely deep adjustment, but the chances of all that happening are about zero. What we'll likely get is a long-lasting and dismal depression overlaid with a police state and general chaos. Casey added that the, war, the U.S. became the world's freest and most prosperous country because it was a middle-class society. Middle-class people tend to be conservative, self-sufficient, and family-oriented. They're future-oriented workers and savers. The problem is that the U.S. middle class is being squeezed. As Lenin predicted, between the millstones of taxation and inflation, they're being wiped out. What we have left are the upper and lower classes. So my, my point in bringing all this up today is that moving ahead, if you're planning for retirement, doing things the traditional way, may not get you the results that it 
and has gotten you many times, historically speaking. That's why I would encourage you to get your copy of the November Special Report, as well as all the bonus information. The November Special Report is available by visiting the website requestyourreport.com. The November Special Report is titled The Approaching Derivative Implosion, How Your Banks and Investments May Be Affected. I'll send you a copy of the report, as well as a copy of the best-selling book, Revenue Sourcing, as well as a copy of the Little Black Book on Social Security Maximization. If you've not yet determined how you're going to collect Social Security, this book can be a valuable resource. You'll get the report, both books, as well as some bonus information when you go to the website, requestyourreport.com, and let me know where to mail it. All you'll need to do is enter an address, and that information will be put in the mail to you immediately. That's my program for this week. Hope you got something you can use. And here's wishing you and yours a happy Thanksgiving. 